Good morning, gentlemen. Um, I'm excited to be here on the ground in Austin, Texas for HBCU South by Southwest. For those of you listening, my name is Janae Queen Nazir. I am the Managing Director at Living Cities. Living Cities is a national uh, nonprofit made up of uh, financial institutions and foundations. And what we are doing together is working to close racial income and wealth gaps so that all people in U.S. cities are economically secure and building wealth. And while there are multiple paths to doing that, we primarily focus on influencing public sector leaders in cities, because we believe that there's like some leverage we can get, um, working with local municip um, mun municipalities so that they do some personal work around racial equity awareness. Um, those, those skills and that awareness shows up in their role as leaders, as mayors, chiefs of staff, and so forth, and then you can begin to see the changes in systems. And so that's sort of how we approach it through our relationships with city leaders. But it's not just enough for us to do um, work with the local municipalities. We have to facilitate enabling environments, right? Like we're, we're talking about economic security and wealth building. And so for us, we also have a uh, loan fund and its uh, purpose is to support closing racial income and wealth gaps. And we work a lot with fund managers, particularly fund managers of color, because we want to shift the power and those who have access to resources. Um, how do we change the terms? so that they are more favorable, inclusive, and so forth. And so again, and then how do we get those, those funds out to entrepreneurs um, in, in our cities so that they're also you know, investing in the economy? So it's sort of, those are things that we do um, at Living Cities. And so why we are here and having this conversation with you is because one, we're a fan of Rodney Sampson um, and we love what he's doing with young people, particularly young people from HBCUs um, and creating paths to income and wealth, quite frankly, through tech. Uh, and so it's just really exciting to um, be a part of this whole process. So I've got some amazing people around the table. I wish you could see me. Um, I'm gonna introduce our guests and then I'm gonna end it with my colleague, Dimitrik, who can uh, kick us off in this conversation, all right? Michael Ellison from CodePath, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and why you're here. Uh, thanks, uh, th thanks for having me as part of the podcast, and uh, uh, you know, I'm excited to be here. I've been an uh, entrepreneur for the past 14 years, founded six companies, three nonprofits, three tech startups, and the most well-known nonprofit is, I was a founding board member for Women Who Code, it's uh, one of the world's largest organizations supporting professional female engineers. Uh, first board member, <laughs> created the rest of the board. And then uh, the most well-known tech startup, I was a founder of this uh, company that went through Y Combinator, which is a tech accelerator back in 2011. I was one of the earlier black founders. That company is now still running. It's the highest value company ever founded by a black founder at this point. It's called Segment. And my 100% focus right now is on helping more black, African-American, unrepresented minorities to thrive in technical careers. I'm the founder and CEO of an organization called CodePath, and we're increasing diversity in tech by transforming computer science education nationwide. We think we need a system-wide solution because of the 80% attrition rate we see for underrepresented minorities in computer science programs. And uh, we work with major technology companies, Facebook, work with Chad Zuckerberg Initiative and, and uh, many others in order to change not just the curriculum, but also how it's delivered on college campuses. And we're in about 50 colleges and universities at this point. Nice. Thanks, Michael. 
Maurice. Hello. Um, so you tell me to introduce myself. Yeah. Uh, like, you can uh, be creative and fun. I, I, I know I can't. It's hard to go out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're all part of the ecosystem. Uh, my name is Maurice Wilkins. I lead diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Um, for those of you who may not know what the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, it's a philanthropy that uses technology to scale uh, social change. So we're thinking much differently about how we approach, like how you, how you create social change. So we believe that if you infuse technology into philanthropy and grant making, that you can literally rethink, reimagine the way in which that impact exists. Um, so we, we have three focus areas. So we are thinking about how to leverage technology in education, science, and what we call justice and opportunity, which includes criminal justice reform, immigration, and affordable housing, particularly focused on the Bay Area. And, and my work is really thinking about the ways in which you, you can build a ecosystem both internally and externally that is literally centering um, marginalized people. So um, unlike unlike much of the work that you know that we thought we, we think about like we are really thinking about how we focus on these particular groups. How do we reimagine the ways in which we support those folks? And so um, I'm thinking about pre-employment, so the folks that we are trying to build credibility with. Um, and so that's everything from um, event sponsorships to um, grants, that's at the beginning, all the way through employee life cycle. So recruitment process, ensuring that folks are not intentionally or unintentionally excluded from the process. Um, once people are there, they have clear paths forward and are able to grow and thrive in the organization. Uh, thinking about the policies and pr uh, procedures that affect particularly people of color, um, women, and then other folks from marginalized communities. And then like the final piece is then like, how do we take all these things, all this work, and, and then build a ecosystem around it so that one, we are like building and developing best practices, but two, we are supporting externally the folks who are on the ground doing the important work who often don't get the funding needed to be able to do that work. And then how do we then amplify uh, those things to, to really make, make a much, much more robust approach to, to how we solve some of the most difficult problems. Yeah. Great, thank you. Thank you. All right, Wayne. Well, I feel very fortunate, first and foremost, to be on this podcast and certainly joining with Michael and Maurice. I think it's pretty evident the diversity of, of perspectives that you're going to get today. Certainly, uh, Maurice and his focus on uh, new tech startups, but also his focus on uh, helping it from an educational point of view, the enhancement of uh, how we prepare African Americans for this step. Um, and certainly, uh, as Maurice is looking at the policy and practices that go into uh, uh, reducing the barriers that currently exist. I represent Comcast NBC Universal, um, a Fortune 20 company that you know has now really made the transition from becoming kind of a service delivery company to a true tech and media company. Um, we have over 100,000 employees across the across the globe, and just built a 60 story stories tech center in downtown Philadelphia, the largest uh, building in downtown Philadelphia and the largest tech center, as we understand, maybe in the country, uh, just from a, a sheer uh, square footage perspective. We now have somewhere in the neighborhood of about 4,000 tech employees in Philadelphia, but we also have tech locations in Austin, Seattle, Sunnyvale, 
and also we just opened up an engineering center in Chennai, India. And so our focus now is to continue to develop and design leading edge technologies for the media industry. Um, and that cuts across whether it's video or audio or other types of uh, interactive type of media. Um, one of the things that uh, we certainly believe is that um, when it comes to talent, there should be no color lines. Talent is talent no matter you know, what type of, uh, of uh, embodiment it comes into. And particularly in the race to continue to develop new technologies, uh, we have an interest in kind of developing this worldwide global talent workforce that pulls in ideas and perspectives from all communities. And so our um, engagement with uh, OHUB started about three years ago when I was actually here at South by South Southwest for a totally different reason. Mm -hmm. And um, my wife met Rodney's wife and then uh, the two of them introduced Rodney and I together and it's kind of become such a happy type of uh, relationship. Uh, we're here this uh, year to actually recruit somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 students to actually join us in our new tech center in Philadelphia with the idea that that will become the foundation for our ongoing pipeline and relationship between us and uh, historically black colleges. So we're really excited about the opportunity. I'm even more excited to be on this panel with these uh, two illustrious individuals. Your, your point about sort of talent being distributed reminds me of the, the quote around talent is equally distributed, opportunity is not. And so some of that's gonna come up in our conversation today, so I'm holding that. But I wanna um, also invite my colleague Demetri Duckett to join the conversation, but I'm gonna put you on the spot here. I actually want you to participate given your corporate career and pathway, especially as a black man who has had some, um, some some powerful experiences. And so as you're listening and participating in this conversation, I'd love for you to bring that lens into it. Can you do that for me, Mr. Duckett? Unannounced, of course. No problem, <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> I could just be the A-man corner, how's that? <laughs> I forgot my tambourine, but <laughs> there's probably an app for that. So <laughs> Has anyone done the tambourine app, do we know? Can you hear me okay, Santiago? Um, so, hello everyone. Uh, I'm Dimitri Duckett. I'm the Associate Director for Capital Innovation at Living Cities. And uh, within our overall efforts at looking to close income and wealth gaps, we've also recognized that without having sort of an impact investing fund at our disposal, it can be tough sometimes to create proof points. So one of the things I get to do is advise a lot of our entrepreneurship work, a lot of things that we do around our impact investing, and all the things that sort of connect those two pieces together. Uh, just so that you know, we've raised two funds over time, each roughly about $38 million. The first was just over 10 years ago, fully deployed, and then repayment. The second one was just over two years ago. It was a 10-year fund as well, and so we're still deploying those dollars. And so one of the things we look for is opportunities to connect with founders of color, fund managers of color, those who are focused on either one of those markets, all as a way to sort of create a new lens on how to think about the space of people of color growing successful businesses and being able to see some of the outcomes that we take for granted, particularly in the private equity and venture capital world for people of majority race. Uh, so that's one of the reasons we're really enamored uh, uh, to have just this energy that you guys bring to this conversation present today. And so with that, I would like to ask 
an initial question, which is around narrative. You each represent a very distinct perspective in this tech ecosystem, and yet, you're not the common story that people know and understand about people of color in tech. So what do you think about the current narrative and what would you recommend people focus on changing and what things would you recommend that people double down on? When I uh, was in Y Combinator back in 2011, I mean, there's not a lot of black people in Silicon Valley now in tech, but uh, it feels a lot better than it was back then. And in my batch at uh, Y Combinator, there were 80 companies. It was one of the largest batches. Y Combinator gives you $150,000 just from being accepted. And for those that don't know, if you get into Y Combinator, it's like the Harvard of accelerators. And my experience before that, running multiple companies, it was endless hustle. People would automatically assume that I did not know what I was talking about. And I have all these stories of cold calling Goldman Sachs, trying to figure out how someone would take a call because I don't know how to raise money and, you know, I think I have a good idea and, you know, a, a big struggle. But when I got into Y Combinator, it was as if a switch had been flipped and then suddenly people gave me the benefit of the doubt. But in my batch of 80 companies, 150 plus founders, there were no other founders of color. There were zero female founders in this batch. Wow. And then I, I brought this up to uh, the person uh, running Ycom there at the time. I got, I got in trouble a little bit because <laughs> I was like, you see anything wrong here? I mean, you know, you, you're, you say you're representing the best of the best, but I, I see a lot of different types of people not represented here. And uh, he, he was like, it was, you know, he's an engineer's engineer. And he was like, nope, completely meritocratic process. And, you know, I, I it's, it's, it's really unfortunate that that is normal in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And, um, and when you're chatting with engineering executives and when you're looking at founders, it's almost assumed, I've, I've heard VCs say things like, uh, uh, oh, and it's an Asian technical founder, so you know they're probably a pretty good engineer. And, and there's almost an assumption that um, if you're a certain race or a certain gender, you're less technical, mm -hmm. or the startup doesn't have as much substance or it's not scalable when there is a unique opportunity to actually invest in ideas that are, that are overlooked. And the source of innovation really is just you know, differences of opinion or trying new things. So that, that mental model is, it's harmful, quite frankly, because it keeps a lot of people out. Um, are you finding that where you are, Maurice or Wayne, do you want to jump in on this? Sure, I'll just uh, kind of pile on to what Michael said. I can't articulate it any better. There is distinctly a brand issue that we have as blacks and techs about somehow our product or our ideas being somewhat less. Um, and certainly working in the media industry, I think the media industry also has an ownership here whereby we need to start leveraging our presence within the media to promote more of uh, the power and um, the wealth and the value that we bring. So we can't have enough of these podcasts from my perspective to bring people like Michael and Maurice to the table to talk about the great things that we're doing. And even within um, more aggressive media like TV, um, you know, working with a company like NBC Universal, we're trying to continue to influence them to run stories and, and uh, spotlights on African Americans who are doing well in tech. 
we need more of that. They need to see the success stories. They can't be just whimpers. I mean, we have a long history of inventorship. I mean, going back to Garrett Morgan and all the patents that he developed, but we still don't have the new Garrett Morgan of the day right now. Um, and if we do, it's silent. It's not being advertised. And so we've got to figure out a way to get more equality from a media perspective to make sure these success stories are known. I agree with you that we do have the Garrett Morgans, but to, to your point and to Michael's point, there are so many barriers yes. um, and things that are in the way to even creating some sort of enabling environment to support Garrett Morgan to totally be agree. all he or she, she can, be. can be. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And then it's also unfortunate that when you raise these things up, to Michael's point, you said, I got in trouble a little bit. Like, you're challenging the rules, you're challenging status quo. How do we? get or train or teach or build the competencies of um, our black folks coming up through the ranks to manage this notion of like challenging status quo, also being excellent, um, being seen, and more. What, what, what are we doing in addition to the tech skills that get taught, um, but what about the competencies that are necessary so people can survive and thrive in these environments? Yeah, so I think it, it's a matter of the visibility needed to like understand how to navigate the space. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is, like Silicon Valley tech is all a game, and if you do not know how to play the game, you feel miserably and you had a horrible experience wow. in this, or you never even get to the space. Um, and so I think part of it is like thinking about the ways in which you provide access and opportunity to the experiences that are needed. Because quite honestly, if you work at certain places, even just for an internship, you can learn, you can learn a lot of the game very easily. Right. And then once you have that stamp of approval, it's like cake. You literally, the, like the world is your oyster. Once you figure it out and like begin to be a part of a process, it, it's an opportunity to really like, one, create wealth in a way that you would have never been able to in most places without an advanced or terminal degree. Um, so I'll use myself as the example. Um, I grew up extremely poor. My mother makes $12 an hour right now in 20 whatever year this year is. And my career started in education. I had no clue what Silicon Valley was. I had no clue what any of this thing, this, this stuff was. Right. And on a whim, I had an opportunity to come like start a sales I function at a startup. And then that like literally like sent me on a trajectory that I would not have been able to be on if, if one, if I wasn't in tech and in the Valley, and two, if some white person hadn't said, you should go think about this particular thing. And over in the last three years, my income has tripled since, since that. Like, and, I, and I say that because oftentimes people think, one, you have to be super technical to, to be able to be a part of the space. It would be great because you make even more money, but the, the big piece of it is if you are given the opportunity to really like navigate the space and shine and excel, there's an opportunity to really create um, a name for yourself. But that doesn't happen because they're not enough, they're not enough of us who are going back to like say, hey, here are the things that you need to do to navigate this, technically and not technically. And here are the ways in which you know, I can like support you on that. So for me, um, as a graduate of a historically black college, it's really important for me to go back, bring my friends who are all software engineers, designers, PMs, to be able to like really recreate and give opportunity to say, here's how you do it. Like some students have never even, on a technical front, never even used GitHub. That's at, at the core, what they need to be doing to even get seen. And so if you're not like actually like <laughs> literally checking the boxes, 
then you're never going to get the opportunity. So it's like, how do we, how do we emulate those experiences to ensure that whether you've worked at Facebook or not, you, you can be able to check the box and be able to open a door for access? Because that's literally all you need. The rest can literally be figured out, and it's not that hard once you get there. So just a note on that GitHub, if you are not on GitHub, get on GitHub. Is that right? Is that, if you're a sophomore, I don't, okay, all right, I'm not a student. Okay. If you are a sophomore engineer and you're working to build a body of work, okay. yes, you should be on GitHub, you should have a portfolio, you should be practicing technical interviews that Michael can help you with, but that's a whole other conversation. Yes, and it's really important because I think a, a, couple, a couple of your points, Maurice, like somebody gave you an opportunity and you, and you even named, you said a white person said this, what happens when we don't even have access to the white people who want to say, who want to give the opportunities, right? Like so, Dimitri, you have a lot to say about this, but why don't you chime in here? You know, you guys just have my brain buzzing uh, with excitement. Uh, one of the things I've always held, you know, I grew up in uh, very modest means as well in the South, and you know, I jokingly say I pay more in taxes now than anyone in my family ever made, yeah. and I recognize that as its own form of growth and evolution of us as a people. And so now we have to do our part for the next round of folks coming. And so when you talk about you know, what those opportunities look like for you, I think of like one of the things I've held for a long time, which is uh, everyone in the world does the best they can with what they have for what they know. And so when we look at the ecosystem in tech, some of the things you just shared are some of the very specific sort of you know, entry points into the world that many of us are left out of if we've not been acculturated. As you start to move further along, it actually brings me back to what you had to say, Michael, which is, you know, once you got into Y Combinator, it was this huge validation. But even that is only one more step. What are some of the things deeper into the ecosystem for founders of color that you think we should be more focused on or that could be developed or created in terms of community preparedness, network awareness, all the other skills beyond I got a great idea and I know how to code. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, thanks. thanks for asking the, the, this question. And I've thought of this a lot and I've been an entrepreneur where it's impossible to raise $10,000. I've been an entrepreneur where raising a million, couple million dollars is just, you know, let me call it five people. and. It's so much about access. It's about what Maurice was talking about, playing the game. When you talk with a lot of VCs uh, that are early stage investors, they'll say, oh, a lot of times I'll need to help my startups with their pitch deck to help it look a certain way. And uh, there's, an, there's certain aspects of playing the game, which is certain people vouch for you, or uh, you look and feel a certain way. And you don't know that if you come from outside communities. But people who are already in those communities they're just, they're, people are holding their hands and showing them, oh, it needs to look like this, it needs to look like that, and this is what you say, and this is how you say it in order to create the right buzz. And I would say one of the most important recommendations I have for entrepreneurs or anyone as you're thinking about your career, you don't need one or two mentors or one or two sponsors or one or two champions, you need an army. Mm -hmm. You need an army of people because any one person, right, we're all super busy. Um, and, and that's actually what it means to build the right momentum in order to actually unlock incredible opportunities. And there's executives I've worked closely with who have been major sponsors at Facebook who've then gone over to Intuit or gone over to Uber 
who then are major sponsors and major champions. And, and you know, there, there's a difference there. There's a difference with people who give advice and like to give advice. There's a difference with people who want to write you checks and love to fundraise. And uh, there's also people who are loudspeakers and they help you to get known in the right way. And you, you need to be thinking of all of this and growing it over time. And again, it's not one or two. It's, you really need to think of it like I'm, it's an army, it's a movement, it's, you know, it's, it's not easy, but it's, it's doable. Wow, and you know, considering that we're gonna be a new majority in this country in just a matter of a couple of decades, um, I would like to think, Wayne, that that creates a different sort of pressures for you guys on the commercial side of tech. And so when I think of what we just heard here, like what does it mean to have the army? What does it mean to be able to have access to the knowledge and all the different pieces? I wonder how much of it is supporting code switching, so to speak, pun intended, uh, for people of color in tech, and how much of it is about building a Wakanda? And so I'd like to toss that to you because for where you sit, you all have some decisions to make that's a little bit different from some of the others around sure, the table. Sure, sure. Well, you know, for the last several years, certainly, we have always dealt with the uh, acknowledgement that the African-American community probably consumes more uh, from a per capita, per capita basis of video consumption than any other community within the United States. That's not a bad thing, necessarily. But certainly, as the consumption of video, consumption of media continues to be a stalwart within the African-American community, the technologies that we used that allow individuals to consume that media also have to reflect the characteristics, the needs, the wants, the desires of that community as well. And so as we think about designing these new technologies for media, we need that link into the African American community because they are a significant consumer of our product. Um, our technologists today don't represent as much of the African American experience as it needs to. Um, we're not 100% sure that that necessarily always has to transform itself into saying that we need technologists on staff, but we need partnerships. We just started a, um, a new startup incubator called Lift Labs a year ago where we have now, I believe, about um, nine companies that have actually graduated from the first year of that incubator. Um, seven of the nine, I believe, decided after the first year to actually uh, keep their headquarters in downtown Philadelphia, close to Comcast, and we're now, I believe, have passed on about four of those onto other venture capital companies. But this partnership between not only techno technological ideas that are developed in-house um, within our own tech center, but also the partnerships now with uh, startup companies, particularly looking for companies that are um, managed or are started by African-American um, entrepreneurs. We believe the combination of the two will help us to draw upon the best ideas and the development and deployment of technologies within the African-American community. So I think it's a little bit of both of what you were saying in terms of in solution. Um, certainly we want to have a greater representation within our own in-house community, but these partnerships with more agile, nimble, flexible startups are extremely important for us as well to continue to make sure that we're bringing the right technologies to this very important population. Thanks, Wayne. So as you talked about, we need partnerships and even people, right, to be behind the technology that is created for folks to consume. Um, Maurice, I actually want to come back to you because in your diversity and inclusion work, what happens when you're sent out to find people 
and there's no one with skills, right? That's a common narrative. What do you do about that? How do you manage that to even get people to come in and play the game or even manage that narrative? Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I am in a different like, seat and perspective, yeah. um, largely because I, I don't think my, my company or organization assumes that there's no like black and brown folks or marginalized people that could be at, at CZI. I think largely because we, so they brought me on, I was an employee like 110. And when you are thinking about diversity and inclusion that early, it allows for there to be certain movements and indicators to say, hey, maybe we can actually do this thing. So um, it's not that we're not like, oh, I have to go validate that black and brown people can like right. work in the space. It's not that. Um, and it also reflects in how the company looks and feels most days. Um, and so I think that's not our battle. Our battle is really now figuring out how do we take this to the next level? How do we ensure that there is equity as it relates to um, folks, particularly across roles? So there may be a lot of black and brown people at the company, but are they in software engineering roles? Are they in you know very technical roles? And so thinking about those particular things. Um, and a lot of what we're thinking about now is how do we move away from this idea of pattern matching. So like, once again, if you went to a particular school, if you worked at a certain place, you automatically are like that person who, who could come here because you know the game. Um, and so I'm trying to move us away from that and working on like really innovative ways of like approaching and thinking about talent. And so that's where partnerships like Copath came from. Um, we work with another company called Carrot that does first round interviews. And so this last year we launched a pilot where we wanted to see and learn like how students were performing, particularly at HBCUs. So um, we ran a bunch of first round interviews at three historically black colleges and two California universities. And in this time we did like a a mock like uh, info session where you can learn a little bit about like what you should be doing to prepare for interviews and then each student was able to sign up for an interview um, and then during this time we collected the data we're looking at you know how students are performing what are the pain points what are the things they need to be working on then we're going to take the data that we're collecting it's still a small end but the idea is that this will continue to build and grow and we'll add more partners and the idea is that we'll really be able to think and, and reimagine how we're approaching like recommendations for professors who and who are the people that we partner with as it relates to those professors and then you can really move like the number of people sheer number of new software engineers that are entering into the space if you have the right people if they know the things they should be focusing on and companies are then willing to like infuse the the resources needed for them to make the movement so it's really about i think at the core of what i'm trying to tell you is that if a company is willing to be creative about how it approaches the, the movement for particularly people from communities that don't get these access, that don't get this access, you can make so much, like so much change. And I think that in the next few years, you'll see a lot more students from historical black colleges who are being able to get to land jobs in Silicon Valley because there are a few of us who are like, this is the only thing that we're going to like solve for. This is the only way that we're going to be able to like create new wealth, if, you know, by doing these particular things. Yeah, no, that's really that's really helpful. You know what I appreciate is this notion of disrupting pattern match matching and doing an equity audit and analysis across the board. You've been using, you've probably heard um, Maurice use reimagine several times. It's actually one of my favorite words when we're thinking about being in institutions and systems 
as we think about the future and that the you know the new majority is going to look really differently, we must reimagine how we can all be better off. And so by disrupting these processes, like you're well on your way. So it's good to know that you're doing that and other folks need to actually adopt that behavior. And I also think it's our obligation, I think. Yeah. The result of CZI is a result of Facebook. Like if Facebook wasn't what Facebook was, if Facebook hasn't created and hurt in some ways the communities that it's a part of, um, you know, CZI wouldn't exist. And so part of what I think our responsibility is as, and I, and I think Mark and Priscilla would say this, part of our responsibility is to, to do our part to, to really facilitate the movement for folks, facilitate the way in which we scale social change. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're in a position that other folks may not be in because there's no bottom line to think about. Like the money is, is there. Like So we're, we're, we're able to use our capital in a way that other folks just wouldn't be able to. That, that's amazing. So y'all keep reimagining um, <laughs> and, and, do, and, 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 and being at the, head of, at the front um, here, because that is really important. And then some of us are still reforming. And so like I'm hearing and even resisting, you know, <laughs> because that is actually what needs to happen. Michael, do you want to get in on this conversation? I saw your energy there. Go ahead. So um, it, there, there's a number of internal influences in Silicon Valley that I think a lot of people are not aware of. When you're looking at small organizations, a thousand, less than a thousand employees, that's small. Pinterest is actually pretty small. Uh, CZI is super small. And there's an opportunity for these organizations to be able to change and reimagine and do things differently. Uh, with CodePath, we're trying to think of the solution systemically. If you're Google and you have a million applications a year, and you're trying to identify what new signals to replace your old signals, mm -hmm. old signals being something like, I work at Facebook, I work at Netflix, I went to MIT. You have resumes, you have these individual recruiters, hundreds of them, and each individually thinking, I get to hit my conversion rate or I'm gonna get fired. Oh, and I have to worry about diversity and inclusion. Oh, well, I do want to do that, but I also wanna have a job. You, you have certain incentives internally, and you need to be able to think about the solution to the problem. What is the new signal you replace? How do you, it's, uh, from how we're thinking about things, it's not ones or twos. It's not hiring even a dozen. It's system-wide, these high potential people who are invisible to these technology companies, how do we get them in the door and they thrive? And that's why, we try to make sure that so our, our courses are actually the same curriculum everywhere where we're teaching. And we have four credit computer science courses at Howard University, but then also at University of Washington. And so you need to provide companies. We don't think about it as we're going to change people's minds. We're just going to align incentives with their business interests so that they're actually hiring more talented people. And they're also diverse, but we're proving that. And then that leads to scalable partnerships. And then our vision for change for the industry is, is uh, well, we're, we're just going to give the industry what they want, which is talented engineers. And we're going to go to all the different computer science programs and HBCUs and HSIs. And we're just going to analyze and put the right programs on there. And then we're going to solve the problem with more data. And what ends up happening is that tech companies actually hire different people. The people were there, but they were invisible. Yeah. 
And uh, for example, this past fall, uh, Facebook is one of our largest partners. We were able to, uh, with a population of 44% first generation college students, 100% being women or underrepresented minorities, we were able to beat their conversion rate, so introducing to hiring um, of their core schools, their Stanford MITs, with schools that they don't even go to. And these students were not already talking to them. And it's because, y y you said this earlier, uh, you know, intelligence is distributed everywhere. It's, it's everywhere, opportunity is not. Uh, and, and also, I think there's a, um, sometimes people don't understand that software engineering is, it takes hundreds and hundreds of hours. If you are in a program that doesn't have enough strength, the professors, the curriculum, uh, the right internships, you're at a, you could be at a multi-year disadvantage. You're still high potential, still smart, but it does take time. And so make sure you allow people to have the right path long-term, where then by the time they are graduating from their computer science programs, that, yeah, they can compete with the MIT and the students who were coding since they were five years old or whatever. Like that's and that's the part that we don't think about. If you, especially on the interview front, like if you go through hundreds of hours of interview prep, regardless of where you came from, you typically are going to perform much better than the person who is not. And oftentimes at historically black colleges, professors are preparing. This is not like an affront, but professors are preparing students to be computer scientists, like in like a theoretical like PhD perspective and not preparing them to be software developers. And that is not practical in, in any way, especially if you want to not get a PhD or a master's in CS. So it's not, they're not necessarily always doing the, the, the they aren't pre preparing you in the right way. They are preparing you for something, it's just not to get a job in Silicon Valley. It's, it's, it's this gap is widening. Computer science is very different than software engineering. It's the difference between you major in linguistics and then you're expected to speak German. So you have 60% of college students are teaching themselves via YouTube about what actual technologies they need to know when they're trying to get internships and entry-level jobs. And you have uh, almost no professors have ever actually worked in the industry. And industry is changing so quickly, academia actually is incentivized not to change quickly, right? right? The career trajectory for a professor. You don't want to build an entirely new curriculum on a technology you've never even seen before you know, every single year. Uh, and so, so th there's incentives, right, within the system. You just have to understand those, uh, and, but then it ends up penalizing students. That's so funny. I think of um, <clears throat> the fact that there is a whole movement of taking students from the high school level mm -hmm. and pushing them into the tech world with, like, applied studies as opposed to the theoretical. Uh, what that reminds me of is this other side of this tech industry, which you, know, you all know well and you certainly experienced your, yourself, Michael, but in the private equity venture capital space, when people start talking about tech, they normally think of the big stories of the big outcomes of who was employee number three at Microsoft, who was employee number 27 at Google, so forth and so on. Who was it that had this idea that then blew up and they got the $100 million exit? And they rarely look like us, if at ever. And so the conversation we're having, which we love as well, is about getting students and others uh, into a track that allows them to have careers in tech. We love that too, working 
uh, wage jobs, like life-sustaining jobs, all those kinds of things. Wonderful. But we're trying to understand how to close wealth gaps, and that's about big outcomes. So the question I would pose is, how do you see the private equity venture capital space connected to this arena of opportunity for young black and brown you know, tech-oriented thinkers? Because some people are also suggesting that maybe the wave of the big outcomes is over. I don't know. Is it time to change the rules because now we're looking to get in? How do you guys react to that and what do you think we might want to consider as we continue to do research in this space? I can uh, start. You know, certainly, while our first and foremost um, uh, purpose is to try to bring um, young tech talent into kind of a corporate uh, 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 environment, there's a stark realization now that uh, the tech millennial is not going to be with any company more than three to four years. It's, they are married more to the tech community than to any distinct company. And what millennials are also doing is that they all have side hustles. I mean, they are always not, you know, maybe they're working the seven, eight, nine, ten hour job at the corporate community, but they have side hustles outside of that environment where they're always looking to try to connect with other individuals in the communities to essentially find uh, potential avenues whereby they can kind of own their own technology, their own product, their own idea. And so I believe that um, what you essentially will see are now individuals who will start maybe their careers working with uh, seasoned thought leaders, uh, maybe in some of our Googles, Netflix, Amazons of the world, but within that five-year period of time, once they've had a chance to interface with those thought leaders, they'll spin off and actually start their own companies in their own communities, um, but they'll get their start in some of these more structured tech environments. And I think tech companies are open to that. In fact, uh, our talent plan today, uh, as it stands within um, Comcast Cable, is distinctly to be kind of the feeder group or feeder pool for young tech talent. We don't expect them to be with Comcast for 30 years. If they're with us for four to five, we feel fortunate and blessed. Uh, but we want them to have that opportunity to work with some of the best cybersecurity uh, professionals that we've been able to bring in the industry into our organization, some of the best AI, artificial intelligence professionals, and then as they rotate out, they'll take that knowledge and that expertise and they'll uh, build back into the community, not only, I think, no, more value-added products and ideas, but I th hopefully more value-added wealth as well. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, I definitely do. Uh, so, uh, you know, I take issue with something you said, uh, the wave is not decreasing, the wave is not over, it's accelerating. Uh, the wave will decrease if our rate of technological innovation decreases, but the technologies that are already here, from blockchain to AI to, um, you know, just, well, uh, yeah, machine learning, and uh, these technologies that are already here have the capacity to change every single business and how it operates. and. Uh, and most businesses are just not even close to realizing current existing benefits, and those are opportunities. And then what makes an entrepreneur able to succeed and thrive is usually some sort of unique insight or some domain expertise paired with an understanding of how to do something better. So when we think of technology, think of it like, okay, I'm going from here to, say, Houston. And you know, at one point, maybe you walked, and at another point, maybe you, you know, uh, were 
jumped on a horse and then you have trains and you have planes and the, the core needs, the core like, oh, well, I need to get from here to there, I gotta ship something from here to there. That actually didn't change and that's how you should be thinking about technology. It's about the best tools in order to solve a problem or to do something better or more effectively. So that is accelerating and the opportunities are accelerating and the wealth generation opportunities are accelerating. So it, I don't think we should be thinking about tech as a vertical. It's something that it's, it's everywhere. And from a private equity and a venture capital standpoint, the way that you get funded is, is just network. Difference between raising a million or a billion, oh well, that's network or raising nothing, but you have a great idea. And I think before you can do the network, there needs to be some sort of filter. And uh, instead of it being, well, I just have a wealthy family or I just know these people, then I think that um, if you are building a technology startup and that is related to technology skills, and you can be non-technical and you can hire engineers, but you might not hire the right engineers. Uh, I can't tell you how many AI startup founders I've talked with where they said all I need is to find a technical co-founder, uh, <laughs> which, which is your core differentiator and the only way you can even build the business. Uh, so, so I think that foundationally we need an uh, education system where you actually are exposed to these technologies. When you talk about AI, ML, blockchain, you talk about uh, iOS or an Android app, that's not being taught in the majority of colleges and universities. It's not being taught in our high schools. So you have people who have great ideas who are really smart. They don't have the tools in order to create the innovation that can catch the attention of the venture capital community uh, anyway. So I think that we, we do need to have a lot of opportunities. And I, I also think outside of colleges and universities, there's opportunities to just simply make these learning um, uh, provide learning from a professional development, skill development standpoint. I think that kind of comes first. Yeah. So, Maurice, yeah. did you want to jump in? Particularly because of the network piece. Yeah, and I think the network piece is the most important piece of it. But I think, I think the bigger piece is like, how do you provide access to learn about the, the technologies and the, I guess the, the skills and professional experiences needed to like get to the door? That's the first piece of it, and I th and I think part of what we have a problem with is we don't we don't create enough spaces of learning and, and communities that allow for us to to do those things. Because the fact of the matter is, we don't need a school to be able to teach these things. So we don't need like a you know like this one monolithic approach to like learning that does not allow for folks to be able to get access. You gotta, we have to create the right opportunities for that to exist. I think oftentimes we, you know, we have these conferences and we do all these things and there's not much learning. We talk a lot about like how, you know, why all these barriers that exist, which are real, but like how do we move beyond that point, which is like the piece that I am really, 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 really interested in. And then how do we leverage the folks who actually know these technologies, who know how to like navigate these spaces to actually be at the forefront to be able to like disseminate that information. Um, so this is something we don't always want to talk about, but in many times, like the barriers are sometimes like black people to, to me getting the knowledge. So I'm like, how do we move away from just this, this idea that, you know, I'm the, I'm the only one and I want to stay that because I get the benefit from it. How do we create this idea that there's, there's enough like, we don't have to just have these few crumbs and try to fight over those. How do we create more opportunity for folks to be able to, like, come along, build together, and, like, create and, re like, reimagine the table the hell we, that we're sitting at? Like, and that's, so that's the part that I think we don't do a good enough job with. 
especially as people who are already in the space, who have already benefited from these things. Um, and so it's a responsibility of us to be facilitating a lot of that like knowledge creation and, and dissemination. Yeah, no, so, so true. Um, one of, the, one of my, the things that I, my soapbox, I suggest that the dark magic of European imperialism is this notion of scarcity. And because we operate and function in scarcity, then you can be in a place as the only black person and believe like I gotta hoard, hoard, hoard because the, 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 what has been passed down and what has been in our culture is that there's not enough. And, unfor and it's unfortunate because right before our very eyes, America has proven its abundance over and over and over again. We have proven our resilience and our creativity over and over again. So you, you know, like I love that you're staying on that reimagined space, but like we do have to, we have to like shift from scarcity to abundance. That's one. We cannot buy into black exceptionalism, which is like another tool to make us feel like, oh, we are the only one and we can't get out the way. And that's black exceptionalism. We are actually, you know, like excellent. excellent. But like, oh, but you're the only one, you're better, you're different, you're not like. And so then, sure, sure black folks buy into like, okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, wipe my shoulders off and be in this space and get comfortable and enjoy it. And so, so there's just these things that we have to wholly disrupt across the board. And you, you like... You, you melted my heart when you talked about the education system because I also come from education and like that whole system needs changed. It just like completely needs undone. All of our systems need changed and undone, but for that to be a fundamental thing in our country and we're still operating it as though we exist in an industrial, like it's the industrial revolution and this is what we need to do, you know, I call BS. Yeah. And we know better, but it benefits certain groups of people. It advantages certain groups of people over and over and over again. And we have, guess what, lost time. And you all said, we need time. That actually can make the difference here. So in any case, I'm just really, really excited to be here um, with Michael Ellison from CodePath, Maurice Wilkins from CZI, and Wayne Davis from Comcast, and um, Demetric Duckett, my uh, partner in crime from Living Cities. Any final words as we close out this, uh, this podcast from each of you? Uh, I, I would just close by saying, first, I'm humbled by just being on the podcast with these uh, illustrious guys and the types of things that they're doing in the community. My hope is that we can do more of this. This information, this information, this education is needed across so many platforms. And so I just applaud you guys for uh, taking the lead to kind of get this started. And my hope is that those who have a chance to listen to this podcast are, are truly fed from it and uh, just pass on the knowledge that you've been able to gather. Thanks, Wayne. I, uh, you know, I, I appreciate being on the podcast and, and sharing my thoughts. I never lost that optimism. Mm -hmm. I back, back when I got to college, I, I also, I, I, most of the people here came from low-income backgrounds. I also came from a low-income background. At one point, was uh, homeless, and, and uh, I was so excited to get into college. I'm like, wow. I'm successful, time to give back. And then, you know, that, that's what I thought, that was like my freshman year. And that led to you know, a string of uh, interesting decisions and opportunities. But, but I, I actually have never lost the optimism. And um, I like to think of myself as, even though I lo know a lot more, I like to think of myself as naive and I always try to figure out like, is there a way we can just throw out everything we're thinking about solving this problem and approach it from a different angle? 
And, uh, and I'm, I'm very hopeful and uh, I feel excited that, that uh, I see more and more of these outside the box reimagining opportunities. And I think Maurice, Maurice is actually a, a great example, right? Because uh, Chen Zuckerberg Initiative could have very easily not done things differently. It's not easy. It's, it's, it's the easy path is take the playbook that is already there. But I see more and more of that. So I'm just, I'm very excited for the future and especially the future for our community. Thank you, Mike. Uh, wow, I gotta be the last one. Oh shoot! All right, let's see. Um, I would, I would say, if I, if I'm talking to like a student who's trying to figure this out, um, one, it can be done. I think oftentimes we don't give enough credit to like just the sheer grit that's needed to like get through these spaces. Um, so I think. Us being here are li like living testaments that one, it can be done, um, and two, that if you, you know, if nothing else, like continue to build a network, continue to work with people, and like grow, grow the community like of people who can help you because you can't do much of these things without a tribe. Um, if I was thinking about this from a like company or organizational standpoint, I would say you companies need to over invest, over index on. Thinking about ways in which they in which they can support access uh, closing the access gap, like even if it's not for just hiring their next set of talent, but just put it, put it aside some resources to be able to like work with organizations who are doing like the work to actually ensure that the like the access gap is closed because one that improves the bottom line, and two it improves the uh, the amount of talent that you can access. So that's the those are the two things that I would say. Demetric, do you want to close us out? Well, I just want to say thank you to each of you for coming today. I love every opportunity I get to just bask in black excellence. And black excellence for me isn't just about wealth. It's about the brilliance and um, the resilience that we bring as a people uh, to place and space. And you all have done that for us today. And so for us in our work at Living Cities and looking for ways to uh, help people understand how to close racial income and wealth gaps in the US, you've given us some really major seeds to carry away. And you have proven you know, my ongoing theorem that everyone in the world does the best they can with what they have for what they know. And so now we know more. We just got to help the students get more. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks.